Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that your word is powerful. That these aren't empty words, these aren't words that we whisper in hope, but these are words of power, words that can transform us. And Lord, we pray that you, you will send your Holy Spirit, fill our hearts with attentiveness and discernment, and we pray that as we listen to your word, your word will be planted in our hearts, that it may grow to bear great fruit in our lives and to the, to the, um, to the glory of your name. In Jesus', Jesus name we pray. Amen. So we're going to conclude our sermon series in Ephesians uh, in chapter 5, from chapter 5. So if you can have, have that open. Before you roll your eyes, I'm going to mention Facebook. Um, there are silly things on Facebook, um, but there are some profound things there as well. And I was scrolling through one of my friend's Facebook page, and this is what he said in the About Me section of his Facebook page. He said simply, Serial Idolater. About me, Serial Idolater. You might think that you've been a Christian all your life, that this is not your problem, that you have worshipped God, the one God, Jesus Christ, most of your life, all your life, People who bow down, bow down to images are idolaters, aren't they? Um, people who uh, go to these temples uh, and bow, bow down or um, worship false gods. But if you look at the beginning of our passage um, in verse 5, Paul says, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Well, immorality, impurity, and greed are not just uh, problems that happen in people who worship images of different gods. They happen in our hearts as well, and they happen all the time. And this isn't just a small problem of wandering hearts. They are signs of idolatry, worship of false gods and not gods. And as my friend said in his Facebook page, I think this is true for most of us. We go from one idol to another. We're often serial idolaters, and that's true of me as well. Well, why do our hearts then wander so much? I think... Ironically, it's because we're made to be in relationship with God. We're made to find satisfaction in God. We're made to obey God. We're made to love God. We're made to enjoy His goodness, His beauty, uh, His holiness, His glory forever and ever. I mean, that is what we're meant to do. But we've fallen out. Our relationship is severed. And even as we are in Christ... We don't live in a perfect world, and we don't live in perfect bodies. We live in a sinful world, in our sinful bodies. We're made, um, the writer of Ecclesiastes wrote that God placed eternity, eternity in the hearts of men. And if we're made for the eternity, then for the infinite goodness of God, that we will not find anything on earth that will satisfy our soul until we have that relationship fully. 
So as we live in this body, and as we wander in this life, in this sinful world, we go from one idol to another idol, trying to worship, I mean, trying to find satisfaction in that. And the thing is, anything can be an idol. Anything can serve as a substitute for true God. You might think that idols are all bad, and actually, that's not true. C.S. Lewis talks about this, Tim Keller has talked about this, and I think this is very, very true, that actually it's often good things in our lives that become idols. Really good things, because good things satisfy us. And it becomes a substitute for God. It might be that your idol is a very good relationship with your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, because it's such a good thing, because it, you find satisfaction in that relationship, it then becomes an idol in our hearts. We, we make that the ultimate thing. We make that thing the thing that we cannot live without. It can be things that you don't have that, that are good as well. Maybe, I mean, it might be your ambition in your career. Well, it can be money as well. Money is, for the most part, a good thing, but it then becomes a bad thing when we, uh, when we replace God with money in our hearts. Greed is the name for that. An idol could be anything that you cannot live without. Anything that you don't have, that you think you must have to feel fulfilled. It might also be maybe a sense of beauty. You think, oh, if I were a bit taller, <laughs> a bit... Um, if my nose was a bit higher, I don't know. Um, if I had the right clothes, then I would be fulfilled. I would be happy. A friend put it this way. We often take good things and make it into God things. I'm sure you've heard that before. We take good things in life and make it God things, and they become idols. But idols speak empty words. They make promises that they cannot fulfill. So Paul says in verse 6, he goes on, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. These idols that guard immorality, impurity, and speak greed, speak empty words. In 1920s, you know about this, Charles Ponzi um, began to advertise that he could get 50% return on your investment in 45 days, 100% return in 90 days. It seemed too good to be true, but people uh, just wanted this to be true, and so they poured their money in. And what ended up happening was uh, in four months, in just four months, he made $420,000, which now is roughly equivalent to $5 million. He made $5 million in four months. And in the end, he was running, obviously, at a huge, enormous uh, loss at, at all times. He was giving money. Um, uh, with the money that he was getting uh, day by day. And he was running at an empty, uh, he was running at an enormous loss. These were empty words uh, he couldn't fulfill. And these are empty words of idols, the promises that idols make, promises that all the good things in the world make, that if you have this, that you will feel fulfilled, are empty promises. There are promises that cannot be fulfilled. Don't be deceived. Idols cannot save us. The only one who can save us, who can satisfy us, who can love us into eternity, 
is God who has made us. God who does not forget us. God who can make our sins disappear. God who can bring us into his presence. And that will be something that we will enjoy for the rest of our lives in the future, in eternity. We will enjoy that presence that will always satisfy us. And he's the only God who is the real God. Anything else is an idol. So don't be deceived by the empty promises of idols of this world. And forgetting God, slipping into idol worship, sliding into thinking that we can hold that what we hold dear can satisfy us is seriously dangerous. So he went on in verse six. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Once again, today marks the beginning of Advent, the season when we remember Christ's first coming and await um, expectantly for his second coming. And it is a time of reflection. It is a time of repentance, a bit like Lent. Jesus is coming. When he first came, only few shepherds, only a few shepherds knew about it. Um, only as, uh, very few people gathered around that momentous event that changed the world. And it's such a remarkable thing that God became a baby. And I, as I think about this, not just that he became a baby, but he spent nine months in somebody's womb. God, who created the heaven and earth, spent nine months in Mary's womb and became a baby. But when he first came, not that many people knew about that. But his second coming will be nothing like the first coming. His second coming, the whole earth will know about Jesus and his coming. He won't come as a mere baby. He will come, he will return as the king over this world, over this universe. He will come to judge. He will come as the judge endowed with power. People will fall at his feet and cry holy. He will come as the mighty king, and there will be judgment. God's wrath will come upon those who are disobedient. Steve Jobs died, um, was it a, a little over a month ago. His problem, his biggest problem wasn't cancer. His problem, his biggest problem was the fact that he will meet his maker again when he rises from the dead. Judgment will happen. God's wrath will come. Anything that is scary in your life, your wife's wrath, <laughs> your husband's wrath, There'll be be nothing like it. God's wrath will be actually wrath. It will not be an impulsive temper tantrum, but it will be wrath. It will be judgment. So don't be fooled by the promises of empty idols, and don't be fooled by all those people who say that there is no judgment, that you can do anything in this world, anything can go. There will be penalty for the things that we have done. So cling 
to Jesus. Above all else, meditate on him. Think upon him. Whenever you feel completely content in this world, whenever you feel satisfied in this world, repent as well. Thank God for the good things that God has given you. And use those to reflect on the goodness of God and how you will be satisfied in the goodness of God for the rest of eternity. And whenever you feel discontent in this world, look to Jesus and look forward to that coming. The judgment will come, Jesus will come, and Jesus will satisfy all of us. Um, And idolatry will lead to immorality, impurity, and greed. And I don't think I need to talk that much about that because that is part of our experience But remember also that God's wrath will come. So first point was just don't be deceived by the words of idols and don't be deceived that there will be no judgment. Second thing, um, from verse 7 and on, keep the light light on. Paul says, therefore, don't be partners with them in verse 7. I think don't participate in, the, in their activities, it's probably a better transca- translation. Wrath of God is coming, so don't be fooled and participate in the acts of disobedience. Not being partners here mean, doesn't mean that we should remove ourselves from our neighborhoods and live in this little commune, Christian commune, but it does mean that we separate, our, separate ourselves from immorality, impurity, and greed. Paul then gives, I think in verse 8, the most striking reason why we shouldn't do these things. And really, verse 8 is um, the summary of Paul's entire theology of the New Testament. I think this is such an important and great verse. So take a look at verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are, the, uh, now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. On the surface, these words sound familiar. Sounds like something that we've heard many times before. But I don't know if you caught this. There's a radical message here. I don't know if you noticed. But he doesn't say that for you were once in darkness. What he says is, for once you were darkness. This is an issue of identity. You were part of darkness. That's what you were. You were darkness. And that doesn't mean that everything that we have done or everything that we are, we're evil. People who are outside of Christ is just evil through and through. That's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity just simply means every faculty of our being, every aspect of our lives has been touched by sin. That there is no pure goodness in there. There is goodness as well, but it has been tainted by sin. Every faculty. And that, that's what, what he means. We, we were once darkness. We were part of that darkness. We were tainted by sin. But just as startlingly, he simply continues and says, Now we are light. You are light in the world. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He doesn't say that we're light by ourselves. We are light in the Lord, he says. Our light is derived. 
Our light is a reflection. We are light in the Lord. Um, conversion isn't just men, uh, mental determination to change. It's not just wishful thinking. It's a radical change in who we are. It's a radical change in our orientation. It's a radical change in the view of eternity. We have been changed completely in our identity. But then he doesn't just end there, you have been changed. right? He continues by saying that live in this light. In verse 8, live as children of light. One commentator says, keep the message is really simply, keep your lights on. Keep your lights on. Live as children of light. Bear the fruit of lightness. Verse 9, all goodness, righteousness, and, tr- and truth, doing what pleases the Lord. Keep the lights on. And really, um, altogether, there, uh, you can see four ways. I'll go through this quickly. Four ways how we can keep the lights on. First is, once again, to remind ourselves that we are a derived light, that we have to be in the Lord. We're to live continually in the Lord, being aware of Him, being determined by Him, discerning what is pleasing to Him, and obeying, obeying Him. Take an hour each day. Take an hour each day to reflect on God. I know that sounds really hard. Take, uh, take 30 minutes if you don't do it at all. Take 30 minutes. Take 15 minutes. Start reflecting in Christ every day. Take a day in each week. Take the Sabbath day to rest and really reflect on the Lord. Um, take a retreat in each month. Go out somewhere. Um, and, and re- to reflect on the Lord. And take a week um, in each year to reflect on, uh, on the Lord and commune with Christ. Go on walking, praying with God. I mean, I think you know, Hong Kong is blessed with such great natural beauty. Um, go out on these walks and just commune with Christ. Pray to him, sing to him. Take your Bible to a quiet place, to a coffee shop, and just read. Pray through your prayer diary. Make sure that you take time with Christ. You are lights in Christ. The world is full of symbols, and not many of them are edifying. Remove yourself from those things. TV, the internet, technology of all kinds, distractions of all kinds to commune with Christ. This also means continue your fellowship with other lights in the world. Embers left alone, will cool down and die. We will burn much more brightly and we'll keep going when we come together as saints in the Lord, as lights in the Lord. Pray together, not only in the church, but set up something in your um, university, in your workplace. Get together with other co-workers and pray. Continue to live in the Lord. Secondly, refuse to be partners with those who are not in Christ. Verse 7, he said, this doesn't mean that, once again, we should separate, our, separate ourselves, but we shouldn't participate in the bad things that are going on. And in last week, um, he, Paul mentions in verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, uh, especially 3, about sexual immorality, adultery, pornography, lewd humor, all kinds of impurity and greed. Don't participate in those. 
And I still remember, um, I think I was in seventh grade or something, um, one of my non-Christian friends asking a friend of mine who was a Christian, Paul, <laughs> he said something like, what would you do if Cindy Crawford came, just said, I want to sleep with you? <laughs> and this is imagination of seventh graders, I'm sorry. But <laughs> when Paul, well, what my friend Paul said, I'd drop everything and run away. It doesn't want to fall into that trap. You know, no matter how attractive that option might be, this isn't a matter of having a guilty conscience or not. Paul considered this a matter of life and death, matter of identity, living as light or darkness, matter of salvation, glorification, or the being objects of wrath. We do not participate in these vices. We run from it. So we run from it. Do not refuse to participate in the, 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 the immoral, impure, unholy activities that are going on in the world. But also, remember thirdly, that we're not just to put off our old self, but we're, all to, uh, we're, we're to put on the new self as well. Put on positive actions as well. Live as children of light. In verse 9, fruits of the light consist in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Our Father is good, righteous, holy. And our children, the children, are to take on these family characteristics. We're all very different. We have very different talents and gifts. But we are supposed to be identifiable as a family of God. Righteousness, goodness, and truth should be part of who we are as children of God. We're going to be different, but we should resemble Christ in, in, in these ways. And finally, Paul says, expose darkness for what it is. I think this is a very difficult thing, but look to verse 11. This is what he says. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Expose darkness. And it's not like he doesn't know what goes on in the darkness. He says he can't even mention what goes on in, in, the, in, in darkness. Well, what does it mean to then expose it? Wouldn't that bring a lot of shame to people? I go back to my friend Paul and the Cindy Crawford scenario. Although my other pre- friend presented this proposition as an opportunity of unprecedented pleasure, especially as imagined by a seventh grade, uh, grader, Paul exposed that thought as fornication. In effect, he told our friend that sleeping with Cindy Crawford would would be sin, that he doesn't want to do, uh, he doesn't want to uh, have anything to do with that. This is what that means: have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We can do this in all sorts of ways, and one of the primary ways of doing it is not participating in them while it is going on in the world. It tells to others that we are what they're doing is wrong when we refuse to participate. Refuse to participate in bullying that goes on in schools. We expose bullying for what it is. When we, will, when we tell the truth about our mistakes and not blame others in our workplaces, like what everybody does, we expose the blame game as, 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 as a dark and evil thing in the world. It happens when we refuse to lie for our bosses. It names that as lie when we say, I can't do that. 
It happens when we go home at 7 p.m. to spend time with God and our family. That exposes darkness to the ambitious um, and overworked culture in Hong Kong. It happens when we speak also and name sin for what it is. That is greed. That is lying. That is immorality. That is impure. All this is very difficult to do without feeling superior to others, without looking holier than thou. But remember the reminder that Paul gives us in in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, be completely humble. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. We bear witness to the truth. And even in exposing the lies that go on in darkness, in humility and gentleness and love, and we must constantly remind ourselves that we are to expose darkness, we are to bear witness to the truth, but in humility, in gentleness, and in love. And what can happen then is remarkable. So see verses 13 and 14. He continued in 13 and 14. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. Most other translations render verse 14 as this, for everything that becomes visible is light. Everything that becomes visible is light. Revealing and exposing sin isn't merely a negative activity. Oh, that's bad, that's bad. Rather, it's also a positive one as well. Sometimes when people's sins are exposed, shame and terrible thing is named, then they too are transformed. They too become lights. For everything that becomes visible is light. Everything that light shines on, take a quality of that light. It's for that reason Paul says to Ephesian Christians and through them to us, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's saying, wake up and shine Christ's light upon other people, so that they may too become light and shine Christ's light upon others. Once again, I I want to um, reflect a little bit about what happened in my life. Um, Once again, when I was a teenager, my father is also a minister in church, and he was still serving in the church. The church was going through a difficult time, and um, my, my father and my mother were just having a really difficult time. But as a teenager, what was going on was just um, really distasteful. <laughs> and, you know, as a teenage boy, teenage boys are, um, are into challenging authority. And um, so I challenged my dad. I actually called him to his face, as, a, as an Asian, this, I think, is a very difficult thing to do, and, but it's, it's my American upbringing. It's terrible. Um, I called him a hypocrite to his face. I thought he would get really angry, and I thought he would then argue with me. But at that point, my dad cried. And I'm sorry I didn't do it with more humility and in, 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 in love. But when truth is exposed, sometimes it transforms and it changes. And that day, my father really became a different man. 
I saw him trying his hardest to live his life differently from then on. And my family could testify to this. He still has faults. Everybody does, don't we? But I see him taking that light on and living in that light more than ever before by the grace of Christ. So don't be afraid to expose darkness. Do it with gentleness, humility, and love. But assumption of this text is that light is powerful. It exposes, but it also transforms people. Everything that exposes becomes light. It transforms. We don't live as people who are merely hopeful that God will shine through us. We know that God will shine through us, and we know that as God shines, the world will be transformed. God is a powerful God, and God can do this through us. God will do do this through us. Light is powerful. So wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's shine Christ's light, and let's keep that light on. And finally, be filled with the Holy Spirit, verses 15 through 21. Living in this world is not just simply a matter of doing what is right and wrong. Because moral law and the way of life that Jesus gives isn't, simply, isn't just simple. How we apply them to our lives can be very difficult, and we need a lot of wisdom in it. When to tell the truth. How to tell the truth. To whom to tell the truth. Are all very difficult questions. So Paul admonishes us in verse 15. Be very careful in how you live. And if I may paraphrase a bit, live wisely. Also, live wisely to make most of every opportunity. This is required in the evil days like this is. And if I may borrow John Stott's words again, everything that is worth doing requires care. Be careful. Living our life requires diligent care. So in verse 18, he goes on to tell us, well, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Often when we speak of, um, we, we speak of being under the influence of alcohol, a person who is filled, um, under the, um, who, who, who drinks a lot, is under the influence. Alcohol affects that person. And the person who is filled with the Spirit lives under the influence of the Spirit. But being drunk on wine and being filled, filled with the Spirit obviously are completely different things. And this is how Dr. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of Westminster Chapel in London, put it in his, uh, with his insight as a medical doctor and also as a preacher. This is what he says. I think this is just so great. Wine and alcohol, pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant. It is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol, and you'll find always that it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. Further, it depresses first and foremost the highest center of all the brain. They take control um, they, they control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes man behave 
at his very best and highest, to the compromises, the, the thing that uh, allows us to behave as human beings. What the Holy Spirit does, however, is the exact opposite, he continues. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into the textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under stimulants. For that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates, uh, he stimulates our every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. If excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Holy Spirit makes us more human, for he makes us like Christ. Rather than losing control under the influence of alcohol, and we stand under, when we stand under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we gain control. Rather than being lost to debauchery, being filled with the Spirit leads to joyful hearts and songs, thanksgiving and mutual submission to one another. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it is a command, not a recommendation. It's not optional. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian must be filled with the Spirit for our life. As Christians, depend on it. However, it's also in passive voice. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not under our control, and there's no magical formula for it. As we live our Christian lives, what we must remind ourselves is that we are utterly dependent beings that we must constantly plead with God to fill us with the Holy Spirit. We must continue to grieve for our sins. We must continue to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let, we must also fill ourselves. The parallel passage in Colossians, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar, um, uh, uh, similar books. In the, in the parallel passage, Paul says, Be, uh, let, the, uh, let, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Meditate on Christ's word. We must cry out to God daily that God will renew us. We must each day long for the filling of the Holy Spirit, renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off experience. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's one-off. But we need to be filled and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit daily throughout our lives. And when we do, we will speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making music in our hearts to the Lord. We will give thanks to God in every situation, not because all situations are good in themselves, but because we trust in the goodness of God in all situations. And we will put other person first, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So don't be deceived by the words of idols. You are light in the Lord. Keep that light on and be filled and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And he will fill your hearts with joy, thanksgiving, allowing us to serve one another. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, and we thank you so much for the inspired word of St. Paul to um, the church in Ephesus. And we thank you so much that these words speak truth to our situation and to our lives even now. But Lord, we are weak, and our hearts are prone to wander. And so, Lord, we pray that you will fill this church with the Holy Spirit. Help us to remember all the things that we've learned through the, the, the sermon series, through the words of, Ephes, uh, words of Ephesians. And we pray that as you empower us to live in you, that we may shine your light, that we may keep the lights on, not only for ourselves, but for the world to see. We pray these things, not for our sake, but for your glory's sake. We pray these things. Um, uh, 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 for, for the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ, amen.